Welcome to the Journal of Community and Sportive Oncology podcast for the May-June 2017 issue. I'm Dr. David Henry. This month we begin with an editorial on how we might improve cancer care using some economic theory. There follows articles on pre-rehabilitation for lymphedema in head and neck cancer patients at a community cancer center, pancreatitis associated with some of the newer classes of antineoplastic therapies, prescriber adherence to antimetic guidelines with a new agent, trifluridine tipracil, also called Lonserf, comprehensive assessment of cancer survivors' concerns to inform program development, perceived financial hardship among patients with advanced cancer, a case report of metastatic Kaposi's sarcoma with bone involvement and a rare case of hypoglycemia induced by a GIST tumor. And we end this issue with an interview I did with Dr. Joseph Carver about oncology on the heart, so let's begin. So our letter from the editor this month begins with an interesting viewpoint from our editor, Dr. Kevin Knopf, about modern portfolio theory, MPT, introduced by The Economist, Harry Markowitz in 1952, which ultimately won him a Nobel Prize. Simply put, it describes how one's expected rate of financial return depends on how assets are allocated. This theory even drills down into the optimal way to allocate assets for a given system. Might we apply this to healthcare? Dr. Knott says, look at the data. Upon examining delivery of RCHOP to a diffuse large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma sample of Medicare recipients, he found many patients received suboptimal, suboptimal chemotherapy dosing. This was a function of socioeconomic status, even in a single-payer system. Of course, there are many theories and suggestions on how care might best be delivered when care is so expensive, and there are only so many dollars to go around. This editorial highlights how all theories and experience should be on the table for our healthcare discussion to try and solve this incredibly difficult problem. Pre-rehabilitation for lymphedema in head and neck cancer patients at a community cancer center by Dr. Andrew Sember and colleagues from the Disney Family Cancer Center in Burbank, California. Patients with head and neck cancer often develop morbidity as a result of their treatment with surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Recent advances in radiation therapy technique have led to a decline in treatment-related morbidities, but an estimated 50% of these patients will still develop some lymphedema. Adding surgery makes this number approach 75%. These authors describe in a how-we-do-it fashion how an intervention might decrease lymphedema. To To begin with, there is a nurse guided assessment of the therapy side effects. This includes loss of motion of jaw, neck, shoulders, postural deficits, functional loss, pain, balance, dysfunction, weakness, fatigue. Preparation to address and to decrease the chance for lymphedema involves an education of the patient on the basic lymphatic anatomy, a home exercise program, and a plan for follow-up reassessment and treatment. The program then includes patient-reported outcomes, clinician-reported outcomes, functional testing, and some technical objective measurements using tape and liquid uh, correction of digital photography. Before instituting this program, the authors had only a 27% frequency of detecting lymphedema problems early on, and following the program, this number rose to 48%, almost half. This is a nice review and proposed algorithm for education of the patient, early detection by the patient and caregiver of lymphedema, and then treatment. Next, pancreatitis associated with newer classes of antineoplastic therapies by Dr. Gerald Clayman and colleagues from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, Iowa City. 
Newer anti-cancer therapies, including tyrosine kinase inhibitors, immune modulators, immunotherapies, and chemotherapies, have been reported to cause acute pancreatitis. This review got its data from multiple case reports and small case series that associate these agents with pancreatitis. The mechanism may be direct toxicity, elevated triglycerides, immune-mediated injury or direct injury if direct injection into an organ is involved. Detection of pancreatitis can be complicated by the frequent side effects of nausea, vomiting, and sometimes even abdominal pain in patients receiving active cancer therapy, but a diagnosis of pancreatitis should at least be considered. The authors generated this analysis based on a PubMed Google Scholar and Micromedic search term search for pancreatitis related to all these agents. The new PD-1 inhibitors were associated with pancreatitis, surprisingly to me, in about 1.8% of patients receiving them. So we need to pay attention there. The tyrosine kinase inhibitors were also associated with pancreatitis. Too few case reports to come up with a percentage chance for the TKIs, but several hundred patients in total have been reported. Among the older chemotherapy drugs, asparaginase was the most frequent, associated with pancreatitis in 2 to 16% of cases. Oxaliplatin carried a risk of almost 2%, and there are only two cases of pancreatitis with capecitabine, by contrast. Agents causing hypertriglyceridemia, such as everolimus and tamoxifen, might be associated with pancreatitis indirectly. This is a really nice review of the modern era and potential for pancreatitis associated with any given treatment, with extensive tables and case reports making a nice reference for your clinic if you detect an elevated amylase or lipase in a given patient. Next, prescriber adherence to antimetic guidelines with a new agent, trifluoridine tipracil, also known as Lonserf, by Dr. Daniel Childs and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic. The study was performed in 2015. First cycle antimetic prescribing was examined. Of the 44 patients in this study, 64% had nausea and vomiting with previous chemotherapy. The authors found 25% or 50, 25 patients or 57% received prophylactic antiemetics in a guideline adherent manner, NCCN guidelines. Interestingly, the rates of nausea and vomiting were 52% and 24% respectively when following guidelines, while these rates were 33 and 27% when it was a reactive, non-guideline-administered approach. The authors conclude that while the outcomes for nausea and vomiting were not terribly different, whether guidelines were followed or not, their data underscore the need to examine what we do and whether or not we do follow the guidelines, even though it didn't make a difference in this case, especially in our supportive care of patients like chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting prevention. Physician Attitudes and Prevalence of Molecular Testing in Lung Cancer by Dr. Rohit Rao and colleagues from the West Penn Hospital, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 206 cases of advanced non-small cell lung cancer were identified from the tumor registry of three hospitals in this system from February 2011 to February 2013. The authors found EGFR mutations in 7.8% of patients tested and ALK rearrangement 2%, both somewhat lower than report in the literature. However, more interesting was the fact that only 50% of the patients were tested at all for these mutations. Reasons given were inadequate core biopsy size or even FNA testing with smaller sample, neither of which allowed proper evaluation. Nevertheless, this underscores the problem with a large number of patients in this study who were not tested for and possibly missed out on an agent if they had a mutation where a TKI therapy would be superior to chemotherapy. 
And perhaps in this modern era of liquid assay, inadequate solid tumor biopsy testing might be supplemented with a liquid biopsy mutation testing obtained from a blood specimen. Next, comprehensive assessment of cancer survivors' concerns to inform program development by Dr. Susan Mazanik and colleagues from the Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. Healthcare professionals now care for a growing number of diverse cancer survivors, often in an environment where resources are limited. The identification of important concerns to these survivors is essential for programs to address them and continue to deliver a quality care. 2,750 cancer survivors were offered a questionnaire to which 1,005 returned the survey for a 37% response rate. Fears of the cancer recurring and developing a new cancer were the two most prevalent concerns among respondents. Young age, unemployment, race other than white, and female sex were associated with greater moderate or high-level concerns throughout the cancer trajectory post-treatment. This comprehensive needs assessment for what is on the mind of our cancer survivors is ever so important as we try and continue the healing process after the cancer is cured or put into a durable remission. Next, perceived financial hardship among patients with advanced cancer by Sarah Gallops and colleagues from the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing. Patients with advanced cancer experience distress in many forms. Perceived financial hardship, whether real or not, is increasingly a, quote, toxicity of cancer and its therapy. At the very least, it affects quality of life, and possible interventions to ease the impact on patients should be sought. In this study, 100 patients were evaluated. The mean age was 63. Perceived financial hardship was mildly correlated with overall cancer-related distress, symptom distress, and quality of life overall. Importantly, patients with the highest level of perceived financial hardship had the worst quality of life scores, with high levels of cancer-related distress and worse symptoms. This data indicates that the perceived financial hardship, whether real or simply a concern of the patient, can dramatically affect quality of life and needs to be addressed. This month, we have case reports of a metastatic Kaposi sarcoma patient with osseous involvement. The patient had AIDS and a rare case of hypoglycemia induced by classic GIST gastrointestinal stromal tumor, tumor. We end this month's issue with an interview I did entitled Oncology in the Heart with Dr. Joseph Carver, professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is also chief of staff of the Abramson Cancer Center. Dr. Carver reviewed that modern, modern radiation techniques are hugely superior in avoiding cardiac toxicity, not only is the targeting better, but the radiation can follow the movement of the patient, such as occurs with breathing or a heart beating, to avoid off-target effects. We covered, of course, anthracycline, cardiac toxicity. He noted that 1% or less risk of congestive heart failure occurs of a total of up to 400 milligram per meter squared. Above that, the risk can increase significantly. Although fortunately, even as we exceed this risk, the chance of full-blown heart failure is probably only in the range of 4 to 8% cumulative lifetime risk. While we track this by echocardiogram ejection fraction, Dr. Carver felt that a more modern approach would be to follow the N-terminal pro-B type natriuretic peptide, or better put, NT-pro-BNP, to monitor the patients either each cycle or every third cycle. It has strong negative predictive value when it is not elevated. One chemotherapy drug which is still in common use, infusional 5-FU or its oral equivalent, capecitabine, actually has an associated cardiac risk of somewhere between 3 to 5%. This is more of a coronary artery spasm type side effect that can, like Prince Metals angina that can be associated with classic myocardial type symptoms, 
and can lead to an MI if the infusion or oral delivery continues in the face of these symptoms. And finally, we covered the actual structural involvement of the heart if there's metastatic disease to pericardium, such as can occur in breast cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma. Interestingly, renal cell has a tendency to go to the pericardium also. Pericardial effusion and overt tamponade are not uncommon and should be considered when a patient has striking right heart failure and or significant left ventricular output failure, both of which can be associated with acute tamponade. In passing, we discussed the new checkpoint inhibitors and their small but definite frequency of myocarditis, which we should remember as these checkpoint inhibitors increase in usage. And that concludes this month's podcast for the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology May-June issue 2017, which we are now all online digital. So our website for you to visit is jcso-online. That's jcso-online.com. We welcome you to visit us there where you can view this month's issue in living color and text and also review or search old issues. We welcome your suggestions and comments, and we thank you for listening.